the Magic Pisces podcast. Before the ayahuasca, before the clear... Check, check. Let's make sure the sound is working. The sound is working. Um, thanks for tuning in to the Magic Pisces podcast. Been on a podcasting rampage left lately. As I've mentioned before and will be mentioning further, the Course in Miracles podcast is up and running and rocking and rolling. Today we got into lesson 35. Lessons 35 through 39 I refer to as the holy lessons and they are some of my favorite in the entire course. So go back and, you know, start at lesson one. It doesn't, you didn't need to have started on the first of the year. You can just go back and begin on lesson one and if you don't get to lesson two for like five more years, that's okay. So pretty stoked how that podcast is going, 2,500 downloads. It's gone from about 30 downloads a day average to about 85 a day average, which is super cool and very encouraging. So thanks everyone who's been cross-listening. So it's kind of like uh, if you have a band, you know, you have a, one, the Magic Pisces podcast is like the main band and the Course in Miracles podcast is the side project. So it's kind of like the band Rocket from the Crypt and the band, all of his other bands. I doubt too many of my listeners are in know of Rocket of the, from the Crypt. Some I'm sure do, or maybe one or two. Super rad band, one of the coolest bands I ever saw play. Anyway, I'm not sure what I'm going to talk about, except uh, you, I've been, I'm not like a big, oh, I know what I wanted to talk about. I was, the way that I should do these episodes is like you're watching, you're watching YouTube, I'll, I'll be watching YouTube and I'll be like, oh, this is a cool video, I should make a podcast episode about it, but then I just don't do it. So I get the inspiration, but not the integrity. So inspiration plus integrity equals infinity. And if you notice, uh, God is very often speaking to you in spirit, inspiration. God's saying, hey, go do something. And inspiration can take so many different forms and can apply to so many different uh, things, right, or scenarios or whatever. But I was watching, I'm obsessed with gang culture, uh, United States gang culture, and it's, I mean, it is just, as a, a person who is, you know, a surfer, a surfer is a type of subculture, and surfer, surfing can get pretty gangster, um, like legitimately, you know, and uh, a person who grew up in skate culture and who's been a part of, uh, you know, punk rock culture for a very, very, very decades, you know, I understand subcultures. And so, you know, punk rock has its own language. It has its own customs. It has its own personalities. It has its own almost hierarchy. It has its own, um, you know, reverences as they apply to certain people um, and <clears throat> musical, you know, musical creations, I guess. Um, punk, punk, punk rock is also... Um, there's so there's just a really interesting expression of ego in punk rock. Like it's every I read a um, an article, an essay that Greg Graffin, the singer of um, Bad Religion, one of the most the, one of the bands that had the greatest and most enormous impact on my life was Bad Religion. And uh, interestingly, Bad Religion, while at the same time I was 
very deeply into the Grateful Dead world, at least musically. I wasn't really a tour guy, but um, saw enough shows to get what they were all about. Um, and I always saw the Grateful Dead as a punk rock band. I saw them as a very misunderstood punk rock band. One of the most punk rock bands ever, honestly, you could argue. Like, that band, that band did not give a fuck. That band openly, basically, uh, they wouldn't, I wouldn't say that they encouraged, but they were perfectly fine with people selling bathtub acid at their shows to whomever, make, getting it made wherever, you know, and selling it to whomever. And, you know, people who got caught for it sometimes went to prison for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years, maybe even longer. And the dead knew this. The dead were fully aware of what was going on at their shows. Fully. They were one of them. The thing about the dead is that there was no... The audience and the band are kind of all one. It would have been really fascinating to see them back in the day. I have a close friend um, slash spiritual guide who he was at the Cornell 77 shows. Uh, some of the most famous, one of the most famous Grateful Dead shows ever was uh, five, I believe it's five eight seventy seven. I believe it's May 8th. The spring of 1977 Grateful Dead tour is known as one of the, the greatest, one of their best tours ever, spring 77. And five, I believe it's five eight seventy seven, Cornell University. There's just this, the second set, there's just this freaking epic scarlet fire. And there's Phil's laying down these bass lines and they start out the second set with Bobby saying, all right, we're going to play everybody's favorite game. Move back. Everybody take a step back. They go, take a step back. And then everybody has to step back and take another step back. And then Jerry comes in and he's like, well, you see the pe people up front are getting horribly smashed here. So we got to step back. And Jerry never spoke on the microphone. So whenever Jerry says anything and like the five times he ever said anything on the microphone besides singing, Everybody freaks out. So we're like, Jerry's talking. Oh my God, he said move back. We said move back. Move back. <clears throat> and uh, Jerry's fucking punk rock. Jerry, you know, Jerry was as countercultural as you could ever be, as was the entire Grateful Dead phenomenon. And they, you know, the Grateful Dead are uh, probably responsible for more years in prison, more crime, more acts of genuine vigilanteism, outlawism, felonies committed, etc., than every other punk rock band combined. Easily, which is why I have always very much related to them as a a uh, a punk rock band, which kind of brings it back to the um the the phenomenon of punk rock in general, because there are a lot of punk rockers who are like secret deadheads. Not like, not really, nobody really hides that. It's not like it's an in the closet sort of a thing, but Keith Morris, for instance, uh, of the Circle Jerks, and who is responsible for creating what is quite possibly the greatest punk rock album of all time, which just came out at the end of 2022, which I mentioned a couple episodes ago. Uh, call, an, an, the band is Off, O-F-F, exclamation point. And the album is called Free LSD. And I swear these guys just went into the woods and dropped acid for like 30 days straight or something and made this album. It's just a mind-blowing piece of music. And in my opinion, it's the greatest punk rock album ever made. But Keith Morris, their singer, is a deadhead. Um, 
And I have discussed Grateful Dead music with many a punk rocker. The punk rockers I have uh, discussed the dead with are musicians themselves. So I used to talk about the Grateful Dead with uh, Carl Alvarez, who's arguably uh, arguably the greatest punk rock bass player. He, he probably is, without question, the, the greatest punk rock bass player of all time and, without question, one of the greatest bass players ever, if not the greatest. Um, but he he's still you know, technically my friend. If I ran into him, I'm sure we would have plenty to talk about. Um, but he understood. He understood the Grateful Dead. He understood what made them musically... Uh, amazing, musically anomalous. Um, and I discussed them over the years with a handful of punk rockers. And there's just this, the, the thing about the, the punk rock scene is it's very, um, it's very, uh, there's a lot of people pleasing that happens in, in it, inside of it. And that's, to, to go back to that essay that Greg Graffin uh, by the, uh, the punk rock band Bad Religion wrote, he was talking about how punk rock just became like another popularity contest. It just became like another, people go into the punk rock world to rebel against, you know, like the cheerleaders and the football players of their school, but then that subculture just turns into a different jock thing, you know, like punk rock shows in the early 80s were incredibly violent. The first punk rock show I saw in 1992 was um, Naked Raygun at the Riviera in Chicago, and that was scary. That was a scary, the, the shows were scary. They were violent. There were racist skinheads and non-racist skinheads at those shows, and um, seeing a real violent skinhead when you're like this, you know, 16-year-old kid from the suburbs um, at their first show in the city that I had to beg my mom to let me go to, and some like older kid who was like, he was like a freshman in college, and I was like a sophomore in high school, and some kid that was like John Hess, actually, who was a year older than me, like, got me the ride, you know, and my mom had to talk to his mom. <laughs> my mom had to call the venue and like talk to, you know, the the whoever answered the Riviera venue phone answered my mother. <laughs> the woman who answered the Riviera venue phone call uh, phone had to answer my mother's questions about whether or not it would be safe. And a Naked Ray Gun concert is not safe. There's nothing safe about it. There's absolutely nothing safe about any of the punk rock shows I ever went to. Nothing at all. And, you know, the whoever, you know, you got to figure it's probably just some like, this is like 1991, I think, like, it's probably like some 22-year-old alcoholic cokehead who answered the phone. Like, oh, no, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it, you know. Like, then my mom lets me go. But that shit was fucking crazy. Like, it was, it was fucking gnarly. And, and then I went to, there was this, probably the best punk rock show I ever saw, ever, was this band Pegboy, who has one of the, two of the members of Naked Reagan were in Pegboy. Um, their original guitar player, and it was it was at this shitty ass place called McGregor's Pub in McGregor's Bar or McGregor's whatever in Elmhurst, Illinois, and it was it was the fucking and the show started at like five o'clock in the afternoon or something. It was so fucking gnarly. Like, it was so punk rock that they didn't even turn the lights off. It was just, like, the most... It was one of the most amazing experiences of my entire life. And this is before I found drugs. And this is before 
um, I, my mind had been polluted by all of that, and I was still pretty much a skater, although, you know, skating, skate, I, was, I was not really into street skating. I was a transition skater. The ramp got torn down. Maybe if the, the vert ramp in my town hadn't been torn down, then I wouldn't have gotten addicted to drugs because the skaters were not really into drugs. The punkers that hung along, hung around the skaters were into drugs, but they were like very distinct subcultures. So, subcultures. So back to subcultures. Um, so the punk rock is a subculture. It's very clicky. It's very, there's hierarchies. When I lived in Fort Collins, Colorado, um, and the, the punk rock scene there was epic. The descendants lived there, and you know, Carl was my friend. And, you know, Carl, who I was mentioning before, arguably the greatest bass player ever. So I would be name-dropping Carl's name all the time like a fucking douche. Everybody would be name-dropping everybody all the time. And, like, you know, casually referring to people in the bands like they knew them. And everybody knew them, right? And, and the bands, you know, you're in a punk rock band that's that good. Like, you're, there's no way you can't get a big head. Anybody in a band has a, has a big head. It's just the way that it is. Anybody who does anything cool is, you know, likely to get a big head. I have a fucking big head about being a podcaster, and my book's coming out soon. I'll probably get a fucking big head about that. But I've been doing a lot of spiritual work, so the ego component there is hopefully as small as possible. But um, punk rock, subculture, clickiness, people-pleasing, sycophants, all of that shit, right? And then the people that are just like punk as fuck that don't give a fuck at all. And, you know, they're their own thing. But then they create their identities around not giving a fuck to such an extent that they do. Because everybody gives at least one fuck, don't they? I hope so. So anyway, back to uh, gang culture, gang subculture, which is where this whole tangent came from. Um, gang culture in the United States fascinates the shit out of me. It is such a, you know, as a person who was wandering the west side of Chicago um, and you know, as a junkie, I, like the black neighborhoods, African-American neighborhoods, if you want to call them the ghettos, Ice, Ice Cube says they call me a, call my neighborhood a ghetto because it houses minorities. Um, you know, and I remember being in rehab with this one guy, this black guy one time, and he's like, do not call my neighborhood, do not call the neighborhood a ghetto. It's a community. It's a community. And I was like, damn, you're right. I, I wasn't the one calling it the ghetto, but he's right. It's it's, they call my neighborhood a ghetto because it houses minorities. But let me tell you what, going into the ghetto as a white, white boy, like the, the real ghetto, like a real no bullshit fucking ghetto, you see the contrast between white culture and black culture, you know? And then I came from upper middle class white culture, um, and that, that's, it's just who I am. Like we can't, we can't, we can't turn off who we are. Like, we become who we are very early, very, very early in life. By age four, the personality has been formed, right? So we have internalized all of that stuff at, at that early of an age. So I internalized all that upper, white, upper class stuff. It's just a, a part of me, you know? There's part of me that's just very snotty and, you know, snooty and from Glen Ellen and, you know, that's just kind of the way I am. I, there's nothing, trying to fight that is pointless. Um, but when you encounter, um, 
which is why I think that it would be challenging for cross, like cross-cultural relationships, like romantic relationships to work. I think friendships work fine, but you know, when you've got a, a cultural, stark cultural differences in place and stark socioeconomic differences in place, you know, those, those can be very challenging uh, dynamics to overcome. There's this great book called Bridges Out of po Poverty by Ruby Payne, Ruby Payne that just breaks down the, the secret hidden rules of each um, like income class. And they're like, they're pretty much, they're kind of like permanent. Like I lived in a trailer park for two years um, in Oceanside, California. I lived in a trailer park in Steamboat, Colorado years ago, but I'm like the snotty dude in the trailer park. You know, I'm living in a trailer park. I know I'm living in a trailer park, but the thing about the people that live in trailer parks is they don't realize they're, they're not going to talk shit about the trailer park. It's just where they're from. That's the difference, you know? So, um, really fascinating stuff, subcultures and, uh, and, and the socioeconomic thing. And, and gangs are this profound, like this like hundreds of thousands of people deep subculture. And I worked with this gang, um, this gang kid way back in the day, like a real hardcore Los Angeles. I think it was, I forget the name of his set. I don't even want to name it. I'm like afraid to name it. Um, but, uh, like, this dude was just a, he was a straight-up fucking killer. Los Angeles fucking killer, you know? And he's telling this story one time about these gang, these, these guys from another gang kidnapped him and held a gun to his head, and they were, like, told him to renounce his set. Like, you have to renounce your set or we're going to kill you. And he was like, yo, Westside Playboys until I die, <laughs> you know? And they respected him. Right after they like beat him up and kidnapped him and held a gun to his head and told him that they were gonna kill him if he didn't denounce his set. He didn't denounce his set, and they fucking let him go. They let him live. They respected him. They, if he had renounced his set or denounced his set or whatever it is, they might not have just shot him. They might have tortured him. Like who knows? Like that, that 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 culture is just so. It's just fat, again, like, I, I'll, I'll throw the word gangster around, like, oh, that's some fucking gangster shit, that's some fucking gangster shit. I am not gangster. I'm just not. I'm a fucking pussy, right? Like, when it really comes down to it, I'm a scrappy-ass motherfucker, there's no question. But, you know, I, that, that whole, like, respect thing and, like, that whole, like, what respect means to that culture is it's freaking what reputation means it's fascinating and it's it's all um it's all ego right it's this just really interesting and fascinating um sort of exploration of ego right that that exists in gang subculture and so i've been watching this comes back to the original reason why i was talking about why i released this episode i was watching a um a youtube video on the crip walk and, you know, the Crip Walk is like, you know, this dance, these, this dance and this walk that the Crip Gang guys do, the Crip Gang members do. And there's just this, like, the shit is so fucking slick looking. It's just like, 
so cool to watch. And there's just this gigantic, like, if you're a crip, you basically got to, like, know how to crip walk, know how to, like, represent your set, like, fight, throw down if need to be, and I think you need to know how to, like, you know, kill people if necessary. I think that's, like, it. Those are, like, the rules, you know? And Snoop Dogg, this is, I talked about this several episodes ago. Snoop Dogg, at the Super Bowl a couple years ago, there's Snoop and Dr. Dre, and Snoop is dressed out, is decked out from head to toe in all blue, in just this straight up, like, beautiful blue crip regalia, right? And he just does this, like, epic crip walk thing. He's walking down this little staircase on the stage, and he does this killer crip walk, and then he does the crip walk again. And then at the end of his rap thing, he does, he throws up, he straight up throws up the crip gang sign at the Super Bowl. Now, if there is not any greater, like, fuck you to everything than that, I would like to hear about what it is, at least in America. You know, like, we were slaves, and now look at me, you motherfuckers, throwing up a gang sign, like at the Super Bowl, which is a pretty, I think, a pretty white thing, right? At least being at the Super Bowl is a pretty white thing. And he's just like, yo. And in this YouTube video I was watching about the, the Crip Walk, there's, there's this, like, little shot of Snoop Dogg, like, as a, a young Snoop Dogg with, like, he's got, like, long, combed-out hair, and he's just, like, throwing up these fucking, in all blue, like, throwing up these gnarly-ass fucking gang signs. And uh, this is after he was famous. This is after Dre found him. You know, he's just straight up crip. And that is f so fascinating to me. And as a, he here's another component of it all. I was in rehab, um, this is 15 years ago now, and um, I was in, it was about, it was probably like a third, third of the guys in there were black guys. And the, I want to say half of them were like legit, straight up OG, original gangsters, gang members. And one was a, one was a gangster disciple, the other one was a P-Stone, and the other one, I'm not sure what the other one was. Um, but like, these guys are straight up fucking gangbangers. Straight up fucking gangbangers. One who had a murder conviction, mind you. He was beating a guy at the drug tip. He was beating him with a gun. He was pistol whipping him, right? For like control of a drug corner in like 60, like in Englewood in Chicago. And the gun went off and on accident and fucking shot this guy and killed him. And like he got pled down to manslaughter or something. He did like... You know, he did like eight years. He like didn't even do that long a time for it, you know. But this guy's, these guys are in my book. At least two of them are. And uh, the other one was like this dude. He was like six foot eight and weighed like, I don't know, like 350 pounds or something. He's just this big motherfucker, right? He was huge. And um, like not like, not like muscle like built up, but like, I mean, this guy could just pick you up and throw you through a wall, right? And then there was this other little motherfucker that was the gangster disciple, and he was like, he was like five six, and he just like, I, I wasn't afraid of him, but I saw him get mad once and almost throw down with this other guy, and he's like this, he's like a pit bull. Right? He's just like you. Once you saw the viciousness come out, you're just like, damn, I would not fuck with that dude. No, and and when we we went to weights one day, and this dude he's like five six. He never lifted weights. And then um, 
he decided to come down with us one day and he, he threw up, he threw up 225 like seven times or something. I mean, just, just crazy. It might be an exaggeration, but, but still very strong. And, but the other thing about these, these three is that they were also my friends. Like I, I was in rehab with them. Like I, they were like, they were the guys that made um, more sense than most people. And, and they were all super fucking intelligent. And they were also um, very respectful. Like they knew how, they knew the power of respect and understood it. And so it was, and, and we were, we just saw eye to eye, you know, and it was really, and, and then here's the other component. So there's, there's, they were my friends and, Yes, they're these hardcore, like, you know, thug, murdering, fucking gangsters and shit, but they were also just, like, human beings. They all believed in God. They were all children of God. You know, they were just born into this shit, born into the south side of Chicago, born into the west side of Chicago, born into a fucking gang, right? And, and... There, I knew them as, as human beings. I respected them as human beings. I loved them as human beings. And we, we would have these candlelight meetings at night before we went to bed. And our souls would connect in this beautiful, beautiful space. And they would, they would like let us stay up after bedtime because we were doing these meetings together. Rehab, bed, bedtime. Avoid going to rehab if you don't want a bedtime because you will have a bedtime. Um, and, and we would have these, these beautiful, beautiful, deeply connected spiritual experiences together or we would share in this spiritual experience together and it was beautiful and they were fucking, these are human beings. These are children of God. I did not like the the color, the co the differences in our skin color would fade away. You wouldn't be able to see it in the in the darkness of the candlelight, you know, um, and and it would all just it would all just sort of fade away, and we would just be like spiritual beings sharing a powerful healing experience together, uh, who were given choices um, to not live the way that we were, right? And it was only it was. It was crazy because it was only by the grace of God I didn't end up in prison. And I would have found out exactly how gangster I am if I had to go to prison because you will get tested in prison. And if you got to go into a cell and fight somebody halfway to the death to get respect, that's what you have to do in prison. Now, when I was younger, I was not as strong. I'm actually a strong guy now. I was not strong back then, so who knows what would have happened, right? But, uh, but it, was, it was just like, man, like, my skateboard, my skateboard was their handgun. You know what I mean? Like my, my dropping in on a, on a vert ramp rite of passage was like their killing somebody passage or getting jumped into a gang passage, rite of passage. You know, my initiation was so much different than their initiation, but we were all kids facing initiations, facing those things that need to happen um, between childhood and adulthood. You know, like a, uh, I actually never ollied a seven stair handrail. I, I, um, I bomb dropped railing, I could bomb drop railing slide a seven stair handrail, but I could never ollie a seven stair handrail. 
uh, seven stair staircase. Um, I could do six stairs, but I was I was afraid of getting hurt. And kind of a side note, um, I was listening to an interview not that long ago with Steve Caballero, um, and I'm actually not that great of a skater, so I would get really fucking hurt, you know, because it's different if the skill set's there. Um, if the skill set isn't quite locked in, then you're prone to take much worse spills, right? But um, Steve Caballero was talking about um, like how you have to go through basically a rite of passage in between one level of skateboarding and the next. And if you, um, if you like study, for lack of a better word, like Tony Hawk, you will see all of these rites of passage that involve serious fucking pain, right? And there's a difference between just being hurt and being injured. Injured, you can't get up. Hurt, you can just, you can, you can, you know, shake it off. And so it's about getting hurt over and over again and shaking it off. And I've been injured enough, you know, I've definitely been injured enough to have passed through my rights. It's not the right way of using that. Uh, many times, but it's just, it's, it's sort of part of it. It's, it's part of being engaged in life is getting injured. It's just part of it. And, but for like a gang member, this part of this life is like early death. It's like getting killed for respect, you know? Fascinating shit. So I'll put the Cripwalk YouTube video in the show notes, and I hope you gained something from this episode, and I will talk to you next time. Magic Pisces Podcast. Thank you.